0: I'm truly delighted to be here this morning. Um, I've been to many cities on the East Coast, but never to Manhattan, and uh, it's a great honor and pleasure for me to be here. It's also a great honor and pleasure to be serving at a conference with uh, Dr. Paul Zoll, who I personally have found to be a very powerful teacher and preacher and a spiritual guide for me as well. Your... Um, Folder should have uh, the lecture notes, and uh, what I'd like to do is ask you to look at these lecture notes as we go through this. Because what I've discovered, when uh, a person is presenting and there isn't something to follow, uh, there might be some concept which is difficult, and you get lost then trying to wonder what it's all about. And so I think these notes should be able to tether us. Now I want to mention this. Um, What I'm talking about today you can find right in a volume called On Becoming a Theologian of the Cross by Gerhard Ferdi, my teacher. What I've done with this is I have uh, taken this material and I've added onto it or elaborated on the basis of my own experience and reflection and thinking about this stuff. So if you could please find that, I think it will be really helpful for you um i will not uh hold to um every word of this but uh i will uh follow fairly closely to it um what i'd like to do here is offer a contemporary interpretation of the heidelberg disputation uh which luther presented before his fellow augustinian brothers in the year 1518 in part defending his position um with his new evangelical theology in light of the teachings of his uh, monastic community. And I'd like to look at this in a contemporary kind of way. The theology of the cross, at least amongst mainline Protestants, tends to be misunderstood today as our solidarity with victims. Basically, in the mainline Protestant churches, people are saying, I feel your pain. And in that sense, I'm indicating to you that I am a very compassionate person. Now, much can be said for that compassion means to feel with. And certainly for a person in Christ, living no longer in themselves, but in Christ, meaning honoring God, and loving their neighbor, living outside of themselves, not in themselves, undoubtedly there is powerful compassion which is generated. But all too often, this becomes in mainline Protestantism simply another form of self-righteousness. God feels your pain, and like God, I can feel your pain too. And one could basically say that I'm better than others... Because I feel your pain. And we pick this up, quite frankly, on both uh, spectrums, both aisles in American religiosity. Basically, the religious right will say, I'm better than the religious left because I uphold the order which our country needs to be healthy. I'm better than those on the left. People on the left will basically imply, I'm better because I feel for the downtrodden. My heart goes out for the downtrodden. Both become moralistic approaches of self-righteousness. A true theology of the cross understands that at a very fundamental level, our suffering is due to, to our being at odds with God. The cross, amongst other things, is God's work of breaking down our defense mechanisms so that we can live by God's forgiveness, mercy, and unconditional love. God provides a safe footing for us in this regard to grieve, and grief cleanses us from the faults. Illusions of old defense mechanisms. I might elaborate on this. All my life, what I wish at some level that I could be is a fellow with big muscles. Now, I suppose that when I was 12 years old, what I could have done is, is done, you know, 175 push-ups every day, and I would have accomplished that. But for whatever reason, even though that's been a desire, I have not done that. And for that very reason, I carry a kind of pain within me. The pain is saying, Mattis, you're not living up to your potential. You could be moosey-bruosey. Impress the world that way. But that (laughs) hasn't happened. And so there's a kind of pain of my not living up to my potential. Now, mind you, mind you, that accusation is also indicating something that has been twisted, but that God has also, through natural law, written into the universe. Part of, if you have big muscles, is going to indicate that you could be safe, or you could protect others and not just yourself. And certainly we need a world with safety. There's much good with that. But it becomes twisted. Big muscles would indicate for many sexual attraction. Quite frankly, much good with that. The race needs to continue to go on. There's much good with that. But by the same token it becomes abusive in one's life. Easily becomes abusive. You remember the stories in Scripture, more than one, about a woman who had been violated. But even so, she is the one in that society which is perceived as being guilty. It might be the story in John 8, where Jesus says, The one without sin should cast the first stone. The point there is that woman's identity comes not from that culture, not from that accusing voice of the law that says she is an outsider, she is a sinner, she doesn't belong. Her identity comes from Jesus Christ, who claims her as his own. That mark against her undoubtedly never fully leaves. It is a part of her history. But that history of finding herself in an abusive system is not the core identity of who she is. because the core identity of who she is comes from one person alone, Jesus Christ, and it is his righteousness that claims the sinner, her as his own. It is that gospel, that grace, that good news that trumps law and even puts it to death on the cross. So that God's righteousness, which is God's love, to claim this person, that becomes the bottom line for her core identity. Human life is such that we end up suffering God's work upon us. Because God's active goodness is always present in all things in creation. But under the conditions of sin, God's goodness, which would generate and regenerate life, works against people curved in upon themselves. I would almost look at the words of H. Richard Niebuhr, where he said, Um, God is acting in all actions upon you, so respond to everything as to respond to God. And perhaps we need to look at that as God is acting in all actions upon you. So trust that God is remaking you to be a person of faith. That God is working upon all people at all times through creation, and creation is God's very mask, that God is working upon people, people don't always hear or sense or perceive God's goodness. Because for God to build in our lives a very beautiful garden, that means there is so many weeds which he must uproot and take out. Now, I don't have a clue about how, Metaphorically speaking, a root might feel about being uprooted. But I can say this, we cannot but encounter pain in our lives. So much of the religious right wants to say if you accept Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, he is almost like a sugar pill that will put a smiley face on you emotionally and ethically you will contribute to an America of order Jesus is no sugar pill because there is so much that God must uproot in every sinner's life and to experience that uprootedness that God is working So much that God needs to break down as God is in his proper action of building up an alien work of God which is alien due to our sinfulness but a proper work of God which is to build us to be people of faith to fear love and trust in God above all things that in this world where it is not always clear that God is for us in the creation. A world of tsunamis, tornadoes. That in faith we can quote along with St. Paul if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Who will bring any charge against us? God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? There is therefore, as St. Paul says, Romans 8 verse 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of fear and death. Dear friends in Christ, this is exactly what this word of the gospel means. That you are set free. You are a free person in Jesus Christ. That the accusations of the law come to their end in Jesus Christ. So that your whole life is one of God's promise claimed by God. Most belief systems, whether they come in some kind of package, in some kind of religious format, as much as I love St. Augustine, or, quite frankly, there's a side of me that love much of the mystics, Dionysius, Thomism, much that I love in St. Thomas Aquinas, much of Calvin, and there's much that I love in Calvin's thinking. The Anabaptist tradition... The liberal mainline Protestant tradition, or in Hinduism, Buddhism, or various forms of secular religion. Faith systems, capitalism, Marxism, humanism, even Nietzsche's Ibemensch, They all come down to develop your potential. Our potential ought to be for the sake of our neighbor. Serving them as little Christ's not for our own merit, for whatever symbol system we look at that says we count, but simply for the well-being of that neighbor. The theology of the cross helps us experience and feel our passivity before God. We suffer the sovereign workings of God in our lives. And it is a suffering, an experience, that all humans encounter. The great well-being and gift for Christians is that it is not suffering alone that we encounter, but also new life, new hope, and freedom coming from that very word that Christ gave to that woman in John 8, neither do I condemn thee. Neither do I condemn thee. And a hope for a new walk in life, go and sin no more. Apart from that freedom of neither do I condemn thee, chances are there would be very little hope for that word, go and sin, no more. Perhaps our age is one which has seen a move within the last hundred years, more from a concern about guilt to one about meaninglessness. I think that is highly likely, but by the same token, I think it's far more complicated As I look at my students, young people, and when I was young, I absolutely believed that 20, 30 years in the future, the world would be hunky-dory. And so many of the young women students that I have, just enough who've mentioned to me that they are cutters. I can't imagine. I look at them and I think, you're so beautiful. You're so young. You have the world ahead of you. The pain that they feel. Pain eventually will translate into meaninglessness because meaninglessness is a form of depression. And depression is an unhelpful way of dealing with the pain. Guilt and meaninglessness are intertwined. The one-time Episcopal Dean in San Francisco, Alan Jones, said we live in an age when everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. And again, this is the relationship between Law and gospel. The bound person whose conscience is tormented needs to hear that word of freedom. You are free. By the same token, we live in a world that there is no safety, especially for children, apart from order. We need order. But the sinful human being will always use that order in a twisted way to justify him or herself. So, who is trying to do good works anymore? Perhaps not before God, Coram Dale. But for many young women who are starving themselves to death, in their own minds, they are not doing enough good works because they are never. Then enough. Theologies then of glory. They come in multiples. I have them listed above. America itself is a theology of glory. And that's why, like Ernest Becker's book, Denial of Death, we use symbols for claiming an ultimate worth for ourselves to try to defy death. But they are ineffectual. So, on the second page, the cross, then, is God's attack. I use those words and I think about the concern for violence and a nonviolent God. God, in the core of his being, Is love. God is love. But as sinful human beings, we are engaged in a power struggle with God. Just like Jacob at the river Jabbok, who meets in the night one with whom he wrestles and from whom he receives his name Israel one who wrestles with God. As sinners, we will wrestle with God. And it's not that God wants to fight. God is love. But if we will have God only under our own terms, or our own conditions of avoiding and fleeing pain, we will find ourselves constantly wrestling with God. We cannot possibly win. In that alien work of God, God is working that we might become people of faith. Because the cross does indeed attack us, but it does not only attack us. The cross is God's message. I bear your sin. I bear it. It goes to the grave with me. I, Jesus, rise from the dead. That sin stays there. You, child of God, you belong to me. You are precious to me. To hear that word, you are precious to me, allows us to let go of that fight allows us no longer to wrestle like Jacob. Jesus then himself is greatest of sinners. Not you. Jesus is greatest of sinners. Bearing our sin knew this attack well. Hence his cry of dereliction. As sinners we can only die with him And await God's answer in and for him. But this answer, this promise, is on your lips because it is in your heart and vice versa. It is something that you can share with every brother and sister in Christ every day. If God is for us, who is against us? You belong to God. cross then is the doing of God to us, doing us in as sinners and raising us up in faith. And faith opens us to hope and to love. Being able to live outside ourselves in Christ who is our life. For again I repeat, that woman who was to be stoned, her identity does not come from the ones wanting to stone her any more than the ones who were abusing her. It comes from Christ. You belong to me. This permits us to live outside ourselves in Christ and in the neighbor and his or her needs. The story of glory is one which is etched deep into certainly the European-American mind, into the Hindu and Buddhist mind. It's one where our real identity as souls was at one time, if you will, or in eternity was one with God, but they all had a fall and became embodied. And we are on a pilgrimage to return back to God. That is the story of glory. And so what forms of imitated practices will help us to formulate our lives to conform more to the true, the beautiful, and the good? Again, I say in this world we need order. But this quickly becomes part of the story of our struggle with God, like Jacob at the Jabbok. The cross story is one Where we simply have to let go of that narrative. Because repeatedly God is telling us it does not work. It does not work. It does not work. Because you are a creature. And what I have made is good. Indeed, very good. You as a sinner are forgiven for Jesus' sake. And you have the promise of the Spirit in Catholic community to sustain you and uphold you, to build you up. Faith is basically admitting that I am no longer in control and that I trust God to be there for me. But that can be a very painful process. Those of us who work on PhDs, we tend to be control freaks. (laughs) But we're not alone with that. The bankers, the lawyers, even the car mechanics all tend towards that. It's hard to trust. God creates the object of love. God takes what the world and even oneself considers ugly and says, this one is beautiful. I go back to the woman in Romans 8. Someone who could be used and thus abused. She is considered beloved of God. This destroys the whole setup of the physical as a portal to the eternal. That is, our desire to rest in God. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, as St. Augustine says. And to live um, conformably to God. The wise, the philosophers, the wisdom of the world, sees in beauty an opportunity to ascend to the beautiful again. The will remains in control. But God will have us live only by faith, not by sight. I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. But I don't know if that was faith for me. Because in accepting Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, well, the light should go on. They should go on. But they didn't go on. I had eventually to learn to walk by faith, to trust God's word, to believe in God. Actually, the percentage of Americans who have accepted Jesus as their Lord, this isn't special, folks. I mean, this is just deeply American. If you look at the number of Americans who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it's quite phenomenal. Uh, It's it's a part of American identities, revivalism. I'm on page three. In other words, with our defenses and guard always up, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I can use that as a sledgehammer against you. You miserable sinner. You never see the world as it actually is. You only see it through the broken lens of self-protection at every corner. In Thesis 19-21 uh, of the Heidelberg Disputation, which I have before you, uh, it is, a, uh, it is a, a late medieval writing. Uh, perhaps we could look at, look at those theses there, because um, you should have that as well. I have to find mine here. Yeah, here we go. Uh, Theses um, 19 through 21, Theses 19. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian. And mind you, who's a theologian? Dr. Zoll and myself with PhDs? I used to go fishing with Paul Metz and my uncle in Seattle for salmon and cod and Puget Sound every summer all through junior high school and high school fishing at the mouth of the Nisqually River for salmon or an American lake for trout, Uncle Paul, Swedish immigrant, didn't have more than an 8th grade education. Yet he had his thoughts about God, folks. He too is a theologian. All human beings are theologians, at some level or another. The person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God, as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. That is, to look at what God is doing in the world and to say, aha, I can conform to that. Or perhaps in American revivalism, well, I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Therefore, everything in my inner life should be perfect and I can work towards a perfect America. Or for that matter, you could look at mainline Protestantism with simply mirrors in its own way American revivalism, and substitutes the politics of the right with the politics of the left. 20. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God, seen through suffering and the cross. That is, God's work in you is to remake you. It is a painful process, Father. The Christian should not be surprised to discover pain. The Christian should not be surprised that he or she also can grieve that pain. Parents of teenagers know that they have to let go of those kids and they worry silly. Is my kid adequate enough to handle the world? The kid, him or herself, wonders... Am I adequate enough to handle the world? It can concoct all kinds of anxiety. A lot of it simply needs to be a process of letting go. Some of the pain in this world is due to our sin. Some of it is due to simply that we are creatures. We are finite beings. And in that finitude, it means that our control is limited. In our sinfulness, we try to lie to ourselves that we can have more control than that we could ever possibly have it isn't just that relationship it's all through life to let go to transfer our lives into the hands and care of God and to say I know I can do this for Jesus' sake because he is the one who bears my sin he is the one who is risen from the dead Theses 21, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. 22, that wisdom which sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by humans is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. The law that brings the wrath of God kills. Not, I say, because God is violent but because we insist, like being like Jacob at the Jabbok. Accuses, judges, and condemns everything that is not in Christ. But, dear friends, you are in Christ, all of you, and every bit of you. 24. Yet that wisdom is not of itself evil, nor is the law to be evaded. But without the theology of the cross, people misuse the best in the worst manner. I'm going to head back to the notes here. God is making us to be people of faith. Pain does not go away, just as it did not go away for that woman who was going to be stoned. But it is not definitive of our lives. Christ is. God is working in all things. And all things for our good. Romans 8.28 In all things God works together. For our good. A theology of glory, I'm in the middle of the page, it comes across to me as a kind of defense mechanism. And it is, in fact, this defense mechanism that God is breaking down. Hence, in glory theology, we look at the visible displays of God as a jumping point, either through, for St. Thomas Aquinas, an analogy of being, or even perhaps a common shared univocity of being, All people know something of God. The terrified sailors in Jonah prayed to their God as they understood Him. All know God in some way or another, but people have no security with respect to God. The office of Jesus Christ is to make us certain with respect to God. To make us certain. And so the teaching about justification, I think, is saying that the most fundamental truth about life is that life is not about ourselves, it is not an anthropocentric teaching, it's not especially the quest to find a gracious God. It is a teaching wholly and solely about God. That God is in the process of laying claim to his rights, to his creation. And God is justifying himself in claiming that creation as his own. For all of us in our lostness will go around and say something is ugly. Which, in fact, that Creator, through the cross, is claiming as beautiful. And God, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the efficacy of the Holy Spirit, gets what is His, reclaiming the world to Himself. The theology of glory, grace, is a supplement for human willpower, as we are in our process of attempting to perfecting ourselves and killing ourselves in the process. But God works in and through that very self-defeating behavior to ultimately defeat that old Adam or Eve who will not walk by faith so that they might be reborn.